I take refuge in the Buddha, the guide. I take refuge in the Dharma, the path. I take refuge in the Sangha, travelers along the way. I pay homage to my teacher, Karma Sonam Rinchen, to his teacher, Kala Rinpoche, back and back and back, all the way back in time to the two wisdom Dakinis, Naguma and Sukhasiddhi, back, back, back to Dorje Chang, the nature of my own mind. Thank you for getting up early and staying up late. Thank you for washing dishes and cooking and maybe being the only house in your neighborhood with peace and ease and joy. And if you don't have ease and joy, thank you anyway, because you came and your coming didn't depend on anything. So thank you for that. One of my favorite practices is a practice called Lojong, which many of you have probably practiced here. Lojong in Tibetan means mind training. And I used to call it mind training, but then I thought it sounds like hypnotizing and mind control and other things that my family wouldn't want me to do. So I don't call it that in public anymore. And you could call it heart training because as Chosen Roshi pointed out the other night, the Tibetans say the mind and the heart like here. They don't have this idea. Except that heart training sounds to me like something you get at Kaiser in the cardiac unit after you've had a problem. So I don't call it that. So usually I call it Lojong. And there are many Lojongs. Some of them are very complicated. Some are very simple. There's a really beautiful short one called the Wheel of Sharp Weapons that's being taught by a friend of Hogan Roshi's right now. There's another one where the whole path is reduced down. So it's a complete path all the way to enlightenment. Very robust, beautiful toolbox. It's reduced down into just a few pages. So sometimes I study that one. But the one that I was originally trained in and the one that I love the most is called the Seven Points of Mind Training. And so it's 50 to 56, depending on whose translation you read, one sentence instructions about the path of awakening. And it's divided up into seven parts. So the first one is how to prepare to practice. So things like taking refuge, that kind of thing. The second part includes, is called the, the two preliminary, sorry, the two bodhicittas. And the first one is ultimate bodhicitta, so resting in the nature of mind. So it goes right to the point of the whole thing. And the second one is relative bodhicitta, which is what we're practicing here, the practices that open the heart, prepare us for being able to recognize the nature of mind. The third part, which is the part where I spend the most time, is taking the adverse circumstances of life to the path. So I call this the Rapunzel phrase. 
It's how you can spin gold out of straw in your life. And I'm always fascinated by that part. So I read that and would study that a lot. The fourth section of the seven points is the practice for life and also how to carry the practice into death. So using life as a way to prepare for death. Because we say that uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the unencumbered by the physical body and the karma of the physical body, at the time of death, we will have many extraordinary opportunities. And if we have prepared our mind, we may at that time be able to accomplish full enlightenment. The fifth point covers how you know how you're doing on the path. So, of course, most of the people in this culture go straight to the fifth point. <laughs> we want to know what's the, what's the checkbox in that one, but it's not quite like that. And the sixth point is commitments, and the seventh is precepts. So the third point, the one that I like so much, is taking adverse circumstances to the path. The third point in that third section, the aphorism is, be grateful to everyone. Be grateful to everyone. So it is the characteristic of these one-sentence teachings that you read them and you think, oh, I get that, be grateful to everyone. So without reading any commentary, I went out for a month and just started saying thank you to everyone. And that was quite good. That was great practice, actually. It felt good. I made many uh, friends, you know, like <laughs> the people in the grocery store, that sort of thing. But I also realized by being grateful to everyone how much richness there is in my life. And I felt so contented practicing that. And it was so simple. I never felt too tired to be grateful to all the people that I met. And sometimes it was puzzling. I had to look at a pouseless person in front of the store asking for money and support and think, be grateful to this person for what and how. And it was complicated then. And so being grateful became a very robust and interesting practice. And it was so simple. I kept a little card on my windowsill. So when I went to make my coffee in the morning, I just saw the aphorism, be grateful to everyone. So you look at your coffee and you think, how did this coffee get here? And you think about all of the people in the chain of that. And coffee, as you know, as I'm learning now, living here is quite costly to the environment and to, to other beings. So the least we can do is be grateful. In this culture, be grateful to everyone is also a little bit of a rub. So like all of these teachings, if you practice them, this simple one-sentence teaching for a long time, or maybe you practice it a week and then you shuffle the deck of 53 or 54 cards and you pull out another one. This is nice, you can practice this practice like this. But you come back to it again and again through the year, so it's a little different each time. But in this culture, we have the value many people do, of thinking of ourselves as autonomous, self-sufficient, efficacious, small islands of power. I take care of myself. So maybe that's a projection of my own mind state. It could be 
I remember when my daughter said her first whole sentence, it was, I do by self. <laughs> I said something, you know, let me fix your bottle or whatever. And she said, no, thank you. I do by self. I was so shocked, first of all, that it was a whole sentence. But second of all, that the first one was, I do by self. I <laughs> checked in with her recently to see if she needed anything during the pandemic because she's home alone like so many people. And she said, no, I'm all good, which I think is the grown-up version of I do by self. <laughs> but do we do by self? I've been thinking about that this week, and I was thinking today about the lunch that I ate, and I thought, well, I don't work in the garden very often. I did water once in the greenhouse, but I don't work in the garden very often. But here, the community does. So they work in the garden and they water the garden. We, in the community here, you are working very hard in the garden right now because there aren't many of you and the garden is big. Shinee has big manifesting powers. <laughs> so I think we might get 2,000 pounds of potatoes this year, which I really love. And, but even if we weed and we water and we cook, we don't really have an autonomous experience with the garden. So when I was watering the greenhouses the other day, I was thinking, who put this here? I always think this when I work, who came before me? And I feel gratitude for that. And when I clean up at the end of work, which is something I learned to do in this monastery 25 years ago, leave no trace, then I think, who will come after me? So that's not an autonomous experience. That's the experience of connection. And I was looking at those greenhouses and I was thinking, who made these greenhouses? Who made the, the plastic covering on the top? Who made all the tables? Who made all this stuff? And then I was relaxing in there because the greenhouse is kind of pleasant. And I was thinking, who made the road up here so that soil can be brought in? I was thinking even further back, who lived here, like Kisei said, who lived here before us? Who had this land before us? And I remembered reading that Tlatskanai, the Tlatskanai were a tribal people. And I don't know how far they went from the Nehalem Valley, but they inhabited that. And I wondered if we are walking and sitting and building on their home. But the Tlatskanai tribe occupied the land of the Chinook. And so I wondered who was here before the Chinook. But in the moment of wondering all those things, I felt this is not an autonomous experience. This is an experience of connection. And I felt gratitude. We can think about the clothes that we wear. So in this place, most of you that I'm looking at have sewn the clothes that you are wearing but we didn't pick the cotton or we didn't raise the silkworms for the cocoons and the silk. We didn't harvest those things. We didn't put them in the truck. We didn't take them to market. We didn't dye them. We didn't manufacture. We didn't market. We didn't design and on and on and on and on and on. Even once when I used to teach Sunday school, I was thinking about this kind of thing and about gratitude. I was working with the little kids, maybe 
age five to ten, something like that. We had a big piece of plywood that was our table and I laid out a sheet of butcher paper and I said, everyone draw a picture because not everyone could write yet. Everyone draw a picture of what you had for breakfast. So everyone drew that. And then I said, where did it come from? And one little boy said, Safeway. So I said, no, that's true, that's right. Where did the stuff from Safeway come from? And we started backing that up. And I said, every time you say something, draw it, because I forget, because I'm old, so I need a map, I want a picture. And so they drew, and they drew, and they drew. And we had two hours. We took a little break for cookies and meditation, played a little bit outside. And then we came back in, and we were working on the map. And a couple of weeks later, the whole six feet of butcher paper was filled with, oh, but that came from this, and that came from this. And so even a child doesn't have an autonomous experience. Maybe when they're two, maybe they do. We think about these things, and I went through a period with this contemplation where I thought, yeah, but I paid for things. <laughs> I paid for my house, I paid taxes for the road, I bought my car, and I was in a kind of independent 50-year-old successful woman stage, and I wanted some credit for that somehow. <laughs> but I remember thinking in that contemplation, eventually, I was thinking about my savings account because the first time in my life I had anything in savings and I didn't have much, I still don't. But I remember thinking all the money in the world without other beings has no meaning whatsoever. Money is an idea that we trade back and forth as a society. So as people in many countries know, a time can come when your money has no value, you might as well burn it. In fact, people do burn money to keep warm in times like that. So money is an autonomous experience. We need each other in a, in a psychological way too, without each other. And you know this if you've done a solo retreat or a dark retreat, or you've been in a pandemic and you've been locked in your room for four months. We need each other and the mind changes and the body changes when we don't have access to each other's energy and the coming and going and the very things that once made us so crazy about our neighbors and our family and other people, we missed those things. We miss the way that their energy disrupts our habitual tendencies. So we need other people, even the ones that we don't like. We couldn't be here without other people. So we should be saying thank you to someone for our beautiful eyes. Thank you to someone for our agility. Thank you to someone for our height or our strength or our ability to hear musical tunes and discern whether they're on key or off key. Those things were passed to us through a stream of genetics so your parents, their parents, their parents, parents. And if you go back far enough, if you've ever done one of those crazy little genealogical tests, you know, oh, actually everyone's your kinfolk. <laughs> that you come mostly from here, but also from here and also from over here. And it seems like we all have that 2% that's one or two places. So we are not 
independently existing. We not only came from those people, but in another way of thinking, in a bigger way, we are those people. When we practice, we practice because something that we inherited awakens in us. I want my children to hear me say that. (laughs) Hey, you guys. (laughs) Maybe not this life, but maybe next life or the life after that. And I believe, and this is only a belief, you could say it's a view, but I believe also when we practice that our practice impacts people in the future. So I think about my children, and maybe they will have children, maybe they won't, I don't know. I think about my friends' children, my enemies' children, if I have any anymore. And I hope that my practice changes them somehow. So in the time when I can't muster the kindness to practice for myself or people that I know, I just think, let this land somewhere. Let this little bit of sanity land somewhere. This little bit of love land somewhere in another place, in another generation. So we aren't independent. I'm thinking in this time of pandemic, I'm doing this contemplation these days, and I'm thinking about medicine. When you were sick, whose medicine saved you? Some doctor somewhere, but who trained the doctor? And who trained the people who trained the people who trained the doctor? And who developed the drugs and what culture? And way back there, what wise woman went out into a field and gathered herbs and talked to the plants? And that thing later became modern medicine. And what about all of those causes and conditions that come together that we could be grateful for. That instead of being contracted and smaller and smaller and smaller in this stressful time of pandemic and change, we could be more and more expansive through connection and gratitude. I don't think there's a single person who can say They exist in an autonomous way. There's so many names for this. Different Dharma teachers say different things. Thich Nhat Hanh, I think it was, coined the phrase interbeing. It's so beautiful because it's a a living word. We inter-are. Inter-are. I love that. When we meet in our tradition one-on-one, we call it interviews. And I thought for the longest time, our Sanzen, that it was like applying for a job as a bodhisattva. I wasn't sure, why did you call it an interview? And then one day it dawned on me, it's interview. We are exchanging views. We are exchanging experience. This is the transmission of energy and love between my teacher and me and me and people that I work with and all of us together. Sometimes people say to me, when I talk about this kind of thing, I don't feel connected, I feel very autonomous. And I call that sense of autonomous being lonely. I think that being lonely results from unplugging or disconnecting from your own experience.
it's not that you have stopped interbeing with other people, but more that you've stopped noticing your own experience because embedded in that experience is all of that connectivity that I talked about. And I don't have a judgment about being lonely. I, I don't mean that at all. I'm lonely too sometimes, of course. But the best remedy I know for that is to reconnect with your experience through practice so that you begin to feel and again begin to be nourished by the myriad connections that are the truth of our being. We're not just connected to people. Seven and a half, I forgot to look it up this week, but it grows so fast. Seven or eight billion, not just connected to all of those, but we are also connected to animals. Every kind of animal. Tiny, little, unseeable animals. You know those little gnats that fly in the sky in some places? You can't see them. In my family, we call them noceums. So they're just so tiny, you can't see them. We used to do a practice on retreat. It was the last practice of night. And what you do is you make a feast and you do some, mm, one of its functions is atonement. And so then you say to everyone I have any karmic debt to, I invite you now. And you imagine the people that you've harmed and they come in wrathful forms and they're mad and they're angry. And you say, I'm so sorry, I made this feast for you. And you offer that. And then the last little thing that you do before you sit in open awareness is you say, you wait, you feel, and you visualize, everyone else goes home. I took a long time to do this practice. I often fell asleep doing it. You wait till everyone else goes home, and then you say to the tiny little beings, mashi manangshi, zintu manangshi, which means don't be afraid. No, really. Don't be afraid. Come, come. And then there are beings, the Tibetans say, that can only have what is left over and thrown away. They can't eat anything else. And so you say, this last little bit of crumbs, no one else wants this, this is yours. And you offer it until nothing is left, nothing of the feast and nothing of you and you sit in open emptiness. So even those tiny, tiny, tiny waves of energy in the universe that we can't see, we can acknowledge and feel connected to those. We are also connected to the elements, fire, earth, wind, water, air, you know this if you practice. We're made of the elements. I once read, and I, I didn't uh, look it up, I should have, how much we would be worth on the open market for the elements that are available in our body. It's something like $4.37. <laughs> so to be careful, they might sell us here. <laughs> uh, so we are the stuff of the animals, we are the stuff of each other, we are the stuff of the moon and the stars and the sky and fire and earth and air and water. We are definitely not autonomous. Even I remember reading in college, I, had a, I have a science and math minor in college, and I remember reading about the moon and how the moon pulls the tides. You know about that? Yeah, so it has to do with the gravitational pull of the moon 
every woman for centuries has known about the pull of the moon, right? And I was so astonished that the moon was so strong and it was so far away, I was probably 18 at the time, that it could pull the tide from the earth. And one day I went in to see my, my science professor and I said, you blew me away. I didn't know that the moon could pull the tides. And he said, the moon pulls you. And I said, yeah, I know. And he said, you pull the moon. You pull the moon. And I never thought about that. And there I was, 18 and speechless. <laughs> and so I went out of his office and I felt so powerful and so big and so vast. And I felt thankful, thankful to that teacher for telling me that and thankful to that teacher for expanding my mind so that instead of feeling shy and full of anxiety and concern about what other people thought, I felt open and vast and powerful. And I name that as one of my first Dharma experiences. So if we are to be grateful to everyone. We have a lot of thanking to do. We have a lot to be grateful for. And we could spend our whole life and next life and next life finding all the ways to be grateful. All of the different ways to express that. To include, to allow, to make space. To honor, to invite to offer, to let go. When we have this kind of gratitude, it requires some degree of the practice of the four immeasurables, not the formal practice on the cushion, but the practice on the fly, where we get up and we extend love and we extend compassion, and we extend joy, and we appreciate the joy of others, and we don't center the joy on ourselves, but we let others have their joy. And in doing that, we discover, oh, we have even more to be grateful for, because the joy that's theirs is also ours because of that connection. And so no one is left out of this gratitude. We can't, in the end, pick and choose, even the people who make us crazy. And I can think of two or three right now, politicians who are making me crazy. And I think I want to thank them because they show me a way I don't want to be. And it's so clear to me now. And I feel grateful for that. And I find the seeds of their behavior in my own mind. And I feel grateful for that light shined in my direction. So I don't wish them suffering. The hand doesn't wish the foot to hurt. We don't pull up water from a well that we all share and hope that the next person gets contaminated water. We don't do that. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because we know we're connected. We feel it. And so we wish purity and goodness and clear water for all. 
in the same breath when we do that because of that connection we offer that gratitude to others and it's my experience that it just comes back full circle and it feels good to have given it and this i think is the experience of no giver no receiver no gift no the three spheres the merging of the three spheres It's a very powerful thing to contemplate this interdependence. If you rest your awareness on it now, just right here in a very simple way, the contraction that I sometimes feel in the day with all my busyness and my small-mindedness and my self-centered ways expands a little bit. I feel it in my back, my hips, my neck. I just did this meditation at 1.30 today with a group of people. It's their first meditation class and they're three weeks into it. And we just breathed gratitude into all the spaces of the body. And I just saw them get more and more and more open it was so beautiful to watch some of them sitting in recliners you know some of them lying down on the couch two of them fell asleep huh that's so beautiful you know what we say in our tradition if someone falls asleep while meditating you take this off you cover them up So our body hears us when we talk, even if we don't use words out loud, the body hears. And so if we say, may you be well, the body hears that. If we say, I'm sick, the body hears, I am sick. One of the things I remember about living in Nepal is that in Nepali language, you say, malai birami bayo, which means to me, a little sickness came. They know, I am not sickness. I am not sickness. And they're careful what they, the spells they say with their speech. When they speak, they say, we make a change in the world with our words. And so they're very careful in that culture what they say. When we contemplate gratitude to everyone, and we have this experience of interconnectedness, it's possible that on purpose or even accidentally for a beginner like me, I can sometimes relax enough that we spill the spaciousness of mind and my fixed views and all of my habits that get in the way of the free flow of equanimity and compassion and loving kindness, they relax even sometimes just for literally for a second. And in that little space of time, I feel freedom. I love this practice because it's free. Anyone can do it. Having been poor for a number of decades, I, 
I like practices that we can do when we have nothing. But its impact is so vast, bigger than any wall ever built. <laughs> bigger than any city, town, country. And the Karmapa, who is kind of the Dalai Lama of the tradition that I study in, so our, our Karmapa Lama, I once heard a teaching and he said, if you do the smallest virtue, the tiniest little thing, it begins on a trajectory through space and time, and it's never erased. There is no way to undo that virtue. And like all things which go on an arc, so all of our priests are trained in science also, he said, all things that go like this across space and time, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That can never be erased. So even if we practice this gratitude and this acknowledging and resting in our interconnectedness only for a few minutes a day, this is not insignificant gift to the world. We are powerful. You are powerful. Remember that uh, Ojibwe saying, I'm borrowing from another culture, so thank you, that all the time I pity myself and all the time I'm being carried across the sky on great winds. So as practitioners, we have the opportunity to open to the sky part of that, to being carried. We don't do this ourselves. This, we are that wind, we are that sky. We are loving kindness, we are compassion, we are joy. And most of all, we are equanimity. And what I love in the Zen tradition, and I really was not, I don't know why, but I was not totally clear on this until the first month that I came here and we were having a class and I was talking about something, I don't remember. And Jogen Sensei said, or I was saying, you know, one could develop access gradually through the path to get an experience of this vast. Op and Jogen Sensei just couldn't help him himself. He said, Lakeshe, it's available right now, <laughs> right here. It was, I was so grateful for that. So grateful for that. It's so true. So be grateful to everyone. Acknowledge our interconnectedness including yours and mine and all of ours, all of our friends at home on Zoom. Hi, you guys. <laughs> and I, my wish for you that if you settle into that interconnectedness and that gratitude for a moment is that you feel the way that it removes the fetters of fear from the body and the mind. What's to fear? What's left to fear? So we say, and my first Dharma instruction was, abandon all hope and fear. Abandon all hope and proceed fearlessly. Abandon all hope and proceed fearlessly. Practice for no reason whatsoever other than to practice. This is a kind of trust in the Dharma, kind of faith in the Dharma. 
that we can have. So we don't pick and choose, we just do the instructions and we listen to the teacher of the heart. We listen to the teacher of the elements. We listen to the teacher of the air and the earth. And each of you has different teacher because each of you is so different and you do different things. And that will all unfold into some beautiful freedom, completely unique. Thank you.